welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders movers and shakers, trailblazers, and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines, and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimize your success. Murray founded Pippin Nut in 2013 and quickly scaled the company into the most beloved natural nut butter brand in the UK. You'll probably have seen the product in shops such as Ocado and Holland and Barrett as the business has taken shelf space amongst previous giants. Pip generously gave me her time for episode seven in which we discuss finding friends in what can be a very lonely pursuit, why it's impossible to try and do everything and how to make the biggest impact through focus and honesty. Pip shared her thoughts on why transparency has been so central to the way that she works with her team and her customers and why picking your lane and holding your line is the key to her success. Pip also talked candidly about the things she doesn't know and how she backed herself to figure it out through asking questions and surrounding herself with people she could learn from. I loved chatting to Pip and found her honesty really refreshing. She really leads from the front and there are many, many lessons to be learned from her inspiring story. good place to start is can you talk a little bit more about um what you were doing before Pippa Nut what your career was sort of leading up to that point yeah I mean I'm not sure if I'd call it a career because uh probably quite similar to you I mean I've I had a little bit of, of time working uh, for other people but I studied anthropology and geography at university and um which I loved I loved that kind of social sciences and people side of of that um and then I leaped into kind of the cultural sector and I decided I wanted to kind of focus on the arts um, and museum world so I kind of navigated my uh, way around that for a couple of years and ended up at the science museum as a theatre producer um so in terms of like a, a u-turn I mean going into food and drink FMCG it could it literally could not have been more different um I had no understanding of what business was didn't know what a PL was never seen it didn't know what it stood for didn't know what FMCG was so real kind of absolute kind of novice coming into starting up a business and I guess it's part of the reason why I guess when I started to have the idea for picking up 
Um, really, it did take me quite a bit of time to actually get to the point where we actually properly launched a business. It took about two years of like figuring out what this industry really was. Um, but with it meant that I did come at it from a perspective of kind of no really no fear, really, I think. Um, I always sort of felt and there are a few brands that I really respected within the FMCG space when I was first having the idea. The likes of like Propercorn, like Cassandra there, I remember looking at her and being like, she looks really normal. Like if she can do it, I can definitely do it. And it definitely had that kind of attitude where I was like, almost didn't really know what the risks were or how hard it could be to launch a food and drink brand. And so, yeah, from a theatre producer to kind of starting to sort of make my turns into kind of food and drink was, yeah, quite a big tangent for me and not something necessarily that I had a huge amount of experience in. So there was a naivety there that sort of played to your advantage because you almost didn't know how big the challenge was when you started. Yeah, absolutely. I think if I'd known what I know now, I think I could have convinced myself out of doing it. But very much the idea was that, I, you know, I, I kind of felt like what is the worst that can possibly happen? You know, the worst that happens is that you give it a go and, may, and don't risk everything you've got, but I'll give it a go. And if it doesn't work, if nobody likes the products, then I'll just get another job again. And that really was the mentality. And I guess the context was I, I was 24 at the time when I first had the idea. And then it took a couple of years to get the business set up. So, you know, at that point, I really didn't have a lot to lose anyway. I, I sort of was renting a flat in London with some friends. I didn't have any commitments whatsoever. So yeah, with that meant I could just kind of leap into something without necessarily having to think too much about it. Although, you know, I was obviously conscious around some of the risks around the business, but it was relatively from my perspective, felt like a, let's just take every, take it step by step and see where it takes me over the next couple of years. But yeah, I didn't immediately like quit my job or didn't immediately kind of go headlong into kind of huge manufacturing runs. I kind of did take it quite slowly in terms of building up the business initially. So was there a point at which you were like, right, okay, I've sort of been doing this on the side. It's like sort of kitchen table type business. What what was the moment that you thought I'm going to quit my job and actually go at this full time I think this is viable yeah so I I took so I I first had the idea about in sort of 2013 and it was very much sort of sparked from a kind of consumer perspective I saw this kind of category that I was sort of buying into quite a lot as a consumer I, I used to do lots of running and I was quite kind of health conscious um and I remember sort of spotting it and think thinking you know what there's no brand that's that's in front of me here that feels like a lifestyle brand one that like connects with me as a consumer but also fundamentally like is good for you like doesn't contain palm oil doesn't contain sugars etc so literally started looking at the fixture standing in sort of a Sainsbury's thinking there's there's an opportunity here and I, I started literally in my kitchen I bought a blender and this was at the time I was still working full-time bought a blender um started making different recipes in my kitchen and um decided that I'd, I'd try and find a market store that I could sell them at for during my sort of weekends and and I did just that so I'd like what 300 jars at a time and I'd drive down to Maltby Street down in South London and I'd sell at the weekends just to get a taster for it more more to kind of tweak the recipes but also to see if anyone actually thought anything of it and and you know what I think those small steps that you can make particularly when I think if you're very new to this sort of world, you walk into a supermarket and you're like, how the hell do these products get made? Like, I have no idea how supply chains or factories manufacturing works. But 
doing that first step of like market stores is such a great validation. It almost gives you that energy, that like motivation to want to like leap into doing it. So I, I did that for about four months. And it was after that, that I was like, you know what? I really like this. And I just found it kind of like quite satisfying. So after four months doing it, I was like, you know what, I'm going to stop and I'm going to start to find a factory. And for me, you know, I always wanted to have a national brand. It wasn't, my aspiration wasn't to have a, a kind of market store brand. I, I wanted to be in every single kind of cupboard in the UK. Um, so that kind of required kind of a different setup and scale that comes with that. So I um, went about finding sort of a manufacturer and different partners. And obviously um, that was kind of the point where I started to go part-time and eventually went completely full-time on the brand when I was ready for it. Um, so yeah, it was kind of over that two-year period when I first had the idea that I kind of set the business up, you know, raised the money, did the branding, and figured out how to make the product at scale. So when you were on the market stalls, was there any formation of a brand? Or were they sort of unbranded jars with you sort of selling your wares, trying to <laughs> entice people. <laughs> yeah, no, there's some quite, I did like some really rough and with, with a mate, a really rough and ready branding. It was still called Pip and Nut at the time. So the name stuck since then, which, so there was a kind of a bit of a synergy from back then. But um, yeah, it was as, I guess if I was a tech company, it'd be like minimal viable products. What could you do with the least amount of money to get it out the door? And that was basically what I did. And then I thought, okay, right, I'll do it properly now and I'll properly brand it and I'll properly um, make it with a, with a manufacturer and, and make it so that I can actually sell this into supermarkets. From a practical perspective, what were the steps you took? I mean, obviously things like registering the business on Companies House, probably finding an accountant to explain the VAT threshold, how it would work, you know, yeah. finding factories. Was, was there a lot of emailing people, calling people? How did you sort of practically set it up as a proper business? Yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of asking favours, isn't there? Particularly in that first sort of six months to a year where you're trying to figure out what the model is. I think one of the biggest challenges actually, if you're coming into something like this completely fresh, is that you actually have no idea like what the margin structures are, like how the kind of whole business model P&L works. And, And that requires, I think, to some extent, like getting some sort of mentors or experts that can help kind of guide you a little bit. So, um, yeah, I remember I reached out to a few people to kind of initially who I sort of saw were a little bit further in front of me, you know, two or three years out the door and started with like coffees. And then a couple of people became my mentors over that couple of years. And I was trying to figure things out. Um, but yeah, there's, there's like the practical things, which is like finding a factory, which is always a bit of a needle in a haystack, you know, and it's always really difficult when you're very small because you don't, most factories don't really want to work with a startup. You're high risk. You're a bit annoying. You don't really know what you're doing. You've got no volume. You're basically really unappealing in every single way. And you really have to try and find a partner that totally buys into your dream to try and really sell it into them because they're going to be working with someone that is at first tiny but has the potential to be a really significant customer for them so that that's the hardest one and, and really it's a case of like you go to endless trade shows you're constantly asking people do you know anyone you know there are lists long lists of factories and you call them out one by one and they'll say no 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 and eventually you'll get to someone and and, and normally I'd, and I don't know if it's similar to you but if one person says no you ask them well do you know anyone that does or could? And then you get to the next person and the next person. I definitely think that kind of networking, as much as that's a horrible word, is the best way to kind of build a your knowledge around the sector and how it works, but also 
in practical ways like finding a factory as much as anything else. So you're almost having to pitch to the factories to be like, take a chance on us. And and were you having to sort of present a business model or were you really just getting them to buy into the product? Were they, you know, were you sending them product to try and all that kind of stuff? I think it's as much like an investment pitch as it to a first manufacturing partner, because I guess in the same way that an investor is a partner in your business, that they will be your support and obviously finance uh, your business partially. You know, a factory is like the other part of your company. You know, Pippinup really is just the marketing and brand and, you know, and the sales piece, the front end. And really the manufacturing partner is is really looking after making sure your product is made well to your standards and obviously you're working with them, but they are kind of like the the behind the scenes piece that obviously if you wanted to, you could build your own factory, but often when you're starting up for food and drink, it's, it's, it's best to work with a manufacturer who has the experience and scale. So yeah, they, they are like a partner and we call them manufacturing partners because they are just that. They're not just a, a factory that churns out stuff for you. So they are so integral and they're so important. You find someone you trust because it is all built on trust. You know, you have factory contracts, et cetera, but it's about your relationship that you build with them. And and that requires you to sell it in and really get the MDs or owners to like buy into you, um, to you specifically, because that's really all you've got at that particular stage. Mm -hmm. And then you work with their teams to develop the products on the lines. We we see now so much in the media and from statements from big brands about sustainability and being mm. cause-led and impact-led and there's a lot of sort of buzzwords around that and there's it's very difficult for established brands to apply that sort of retroactively yeah it, but it also throws up a lot of logistical challenges for new businesses particularly you know you talk about factory you know manufacturing partners but finding the right balance of sustainability and where the product's from and um how the packaging looks and how it's sent out and all those things the, the budgets aren't always there, particularly when you started um, in 2013. You know, it was much less advanced in terms of the uh, opportunities to launch a brand in that way. You had sort of pillars that were immovable when you launched, like not using palm oil and the formula and things that were really important to you. But how challenging has it been to continue to appeal to a consumer that is so focused on sustainability and impact? And how have you sort of navigated those challenges as the business has grown? Yeah, I mean, I think it is about journey and you're thinking about it as a journey when it comes to sustainability because, you know, when I think about Pippa Nart, yeah, Palmol has been a central, or not using Palmol specifically, has been a central pillar of our brand, you know, and it will be as a continuum going forwards forever. Um, and that is a great thing to hold on to, but you're right. There, there is an ever kind of growing demand for consumers to kind of ask you what you're doing on all these different aspects. And I think one of the things that, um, I certainly learned over the last few years is that, you know, you've got to, you, you can't do everything. You can try and improve and be better on, on a lot of things, but it's better to focus on a handful of things that you feel like a, as a business, you can make the most impact on and is also most important to the world around you. And actually, we did quite a big exercise trying to figure out those two things. Like, where is it that Pippinut sits that actually we can make the biggest impacts? Because I, I like the fact that you use the word impact there rather than just purpose, because it's about thinking, how can you make the biggest difference in the context of your company? So for us, there are things that we want to do better at. You know, we want to improve the diversity of our team. We want to improve 
um, you know, the quality of support that we, we give to our team as an example. Um, but there are also some really big projects that we've decided that we're going to go after more that I'm really invested in. So things like Net Zero as a brand, uh, we're just committing to kind of completing our carbon footprint and putting science-based targets in place to, to get us to Net Zero by 2030. Now, we could have done 101 different other things, you know, we could have focused on um, improving you know, water within our supply chain or the, the kind of the efficiency of water within our supply chain or, you know, reducing the waste as an example. And these are things that we, of course, are trying to do, but actually we're, we're going to go really hard and make sure we're really focused on a handful of things rather than absolutely everything. And then you can shout about them louder. And I guess this is kind of your world. It's thinking about what are the things that you can like pull upon as a brand that you can really be known for because otherwise you'll end up just doing a bit of everything and not doing it hugely well. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah. And I think the consumer is really discerning now. I think there's a lot of virtue signaling. There's a lot of businesses that are sort of half doing stuff. So I think in addition to, to what you're saying, you know, there's an authenticity piece, you know, mm-hmm. I, I do think that consumers are, um, demanding and that's a good thing because it raises the standards and the quality for sure but I also think and we were kind of talking about this offline earlier but there's also got to be some leeway in my opinion for the fact that you are buying into a startup company right so like I mean I when I started I was 22 Mm. I mean I'm honestly like astonished that anyone paid me to do anything (laughs) in my 20s when I look back I'm like what was going through their minds when they paid me to do something. I had no idea what I was doing. I was obviously just had sort of courage and commitment similar to you, like, fuck it. If I, if it goes wrong, I'll be 25 and employable. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of, uh, there's got to be a sense of understanding from people who want to work within the organization and to a degree also consumers that, um, it is a startup and by the nature of that, it's scrappy and things are done on a shoestring. And even, you know, I've worked with businesses that have gone from nothing to 500 million pound valuations in four years. They still operate like a startup. They have deliberately not got red tape and, you know, all the things that slow down large organizations. And I, I sometimes feel like there's, you know, I guess at the moment, the trend, trendy languages around this idea of call out culture um, and, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's a difficult conversation because at times that is very valid. And there are obviously people who are doing things that probably need to be, that there needs to be a light shone on them um, for progress. But there's also got to be a bit of slack for the young entrepreneur having a go, um, mm. you know, not recklessly, but you can't do everything all the time. And I think with purpose and mission, you know, it, it can be a shame if you, you can be criticized for, packaging even if you're you know like you're saying someone can have a pop at you about water and it's it sort of can grind you down a bit do, do you get feedback on social media as uh, places like instagram a big source of customer feedback and do they alert you to sort of the sensibilities of what's important to the consumer yeah um and i think you know our, a brand like mine is is you know you have a really engaged shopper and so they were constantly talking to us i mean for instance, we about to about about obviously the time when David Attenborough had all his big um, uh, planet sort of documentaries about plastic. Um, we got so much backlash about it. Um, 
you know, hundreds and hundreds of messages and emails coming through about, you know, people wanting us to change our jars, which are currently in um, plastic PET. And um, we debased it for ages, moving it obviously to glass, um, which we are now eventually doing. We're we're launching into glass and, and moving all our range into glass in the summer. Uh, which has been a huge project. Sounds small and simple for a brand, but it's actually quite difficult to do. And um, it's stuff like that. Like there are things where you can respond and kind of provide a rationale. And I think one of the key things that, and I'm not sure if we're necessarily amazing at it, but we're working at becoming better is transparency. Because I think if you can provide people with an explanation as to why you're not doing something, or perhaps explain the journey that you're specifically on, people kind of cool down a bit they kind of stop feeling so hot-headed and I, I certainly see this when I speak to kind of brands and things like that and might ask questions it's like I think it's that ultra transparency piece if you can't invest in every aspect of your business and explain and 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 you know improve every aspect as, a, as long as you're transparent I think that goes a long way with consumers who are particularly vocal um so yeah even with the kind of you know, push back on our our plastic jars, we would explain quite heavily, like actually it's quite a big challenge. One of our factories can't can't handle glass at the moment. We physically can't move at the moment, but we're working on it and we'll give you an update in six months time and we've got more news to tell on this. And that's what we kind of, and have drip fed information over the last couple of years as to how we're doing on that. And then now we're eventually delivering on it. So I think transparency is key. If you're going to have, you know, if you're going to be vocal about the kind of business you are in terms of, purpose and and doing good um you need to also make sure you've got your you know what you're going to say when you people point to things in your business which aren't so great Mm. how do you as a founder deal with it do you take it personally when you get criticism or feedback online or are you good (laughs) at sort of separating the business from from yourself um, I've got better, certainly. I remember, uh, you know, obviously the beauty of online is that everyone can review your products and, you know, Acada, Amazon and stuff you can go through and it's like a horrible, I mean, most of them are pretty good, but there are some people that like don't like it, taste horrible, whatever. And they just, it, they'll call it out as something that didn't appeal to them, which is fine. But if you could spend too long dwelling on it. Um, but actually most of the time I see it as like, if there's some feedback in there, you can generally improve in it. And I, I love the idea that products are a constant improvement. They're never static. You're always like working to improve upon them. Um, you know, even if it's like tiny details around like the salt grains in your product, could they be better? It sounds kind of small and maybe a bit pathetic, but actually it's all those little things that build up and improve. So yeah, not so sensitive about it now. Um, but yeah, I kind of think actually it's probably a bit of a blessing because if you get too far away from your your consumer, then you lose sight of actually who you're kind of serving and who you're there to kind of make happy because they're the ones that are buying it. They should get that element of joy when they pick up your products. Well, also, I think the beauty with startups and now, you know, certainly with PR, marketing, social media, founders are more available to consumers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these big organizations, you would never have a dialogue with the decision maker or the founder. So it's increasingly important, I think, for consumers to have a, a sort of a dialogue or a way of expressing themselves so they actually feel like they're a part of the brand so that when you make that migration to glass, there's people going, oh, great. Well, they listened. We had a <laughs> we had a say in that because it's sort of built on the momentum of you creating something that they want. It's like, you know, the ultimate sort of supply demand mm. um, proposition. So it, it, I think people, it's a bit like in the music industry when people are like, oh, I saw Adele in a pub when the tickets were two pounds. It's like people want to just be a part of the discovery 
and then support of something so that there's sort of a bragging rights sort of smugness for want of a better word in in sort of the shared success of seeing the brand and going oh great I I pip a nut and now I'm you know Sainsbury's or whatever it is it's sort of Mm -hmm. like a nod to their their involvement in the growth of it absolutely Um, was that part of the reason you ended up doing a crowdfunding round was it about was it necessity in essence or was it this is a business that's going to be made up of of those consumers and actually giving people an opportunity to to buy into it early on is is interesting. Yeah, so I I did a Crowdcube raise back in 2014. So it was a kind of um, pre-revenue raise that I was doing to kind of get the money I needed to launch the brand. So it's 120K that I ended up raising. I would love to say that it was all about um, it being the consumers buying into it and and that. And I think if I did it now, that would be that would be it. That would be the reason why. Um, but actually, it was more that I found it really really difficult to raise the money for the business when I was getting it out the door. I went and spoke to what felt it wasn't. I don't think it was quite hundreds, but I, I felt like I spoke to so many people trying to sort of raise the cash that I needed to get out the door. But lo and behold, people don't really want to invest in someone that has no experience sole founder, um, potentially female might have played a part in that very young, like no experience, you know, no kind of proven track record of the product really. So, um, yeah, I got a lot of closed doors and I remember just thinking, well, I think the only way I'm going to raise this money or at least the funds that I need to get out the door is to crowdfund it. Cause I can at least pull from like people that maybe would contribute 5k or 10k contribute, I mean, buy, um, shares in, mm. in the brand. So I ended up kind of going down that route because, I just didn't believe I was going to get the funds or the um, commitment from one or two investors. And I needed, I wanted speed and I wanted to get out the door. And so that was the quickest way for me to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, close the fundraise. It, it was a really quick fundraise. It took six days to close the funding round. So um was great in terms of like momentum and getting, and getting started. Um, but yeah, obviously mm-hmm. the benefit of that now is that we've got, you know, from that raise 80 people involved in the business that are sort of ambassadors and hopefully shout about how great we are um, to their friends and family. And did you have in your business plan, did you have a business plan? And did in that business plan, did you think that you would have to do a bigger raise at some point later on for for growth? Yeah. So I think, I I think I was a little bit naive, naive about what is sort of raising money and like what are, sort of the different hurdles you need to kind of get over to do the next round as an example. Um, so I, I think at the time I, I did have a business plan and I had this financial model and stuff that you have to do for Crowdcube when you're putting it on. If I look at it, at it now, it's a bit embarrassing because it's so there's definitely <laughs> lots of holes that you could pick into it. Um, so, but yeah, I knew that for instance, um, in order to raise further funds to drive the business forward, to get that growth capital, um, we'd need to get the business to the next stage of like selling into supermarkets. So I th- there were certain aspects of like things that I needed to deliver. I think within that first year of when I'd got out the door that would enable me to kind of leverage the success that we'd achieved to then go and raise the next round. Um, and we've done um, about four different funding rounds over the last, since that, uh, over the last sort of five, six years um, and sort of different sizes as they've gone up. So have kind of um, managed to kind of get, each tranche getting a little bit bigger and and the last raise we did was um 
just over 2 billion with sort of our first sort of institutional uh, funder um, of VC uh, called DSG. So, um, yeah, I've definitely learned a lot along the way. But I'm, again, I'd say naivety at that starting point. I don't think I really understood what investment really was until I started to really um, sort of grow into the business. And I guess there's sort of slightly learning when you're in the room with that stuff, right? Like people ask similar questions, you realize where you're a little bit more exposed you know, did, did you ever have to say, I'm really sorry, I don't know the answer to that? Like, yeah. can I go away and... You know what, I'm embarrassed to even say, I don't know if I've ever told anyone this, but I remember when I was first going out to like pitch for money and it was before the crowdfund, I, for some reason, went to this venture capitalist trust that somehow emailed me about something. And I, I went to a meeting with them and they'd asked me, well, what's your valuation? And I didn't even know what the word, what valuation meant. I didn't even understand what that meant when someone, or I think they asked me also about the cap table and I had no clue what that meant. And you kind of end up having to bluff it. I think I probably bluffed it, um, but definitely probably looked at me thinking, who is this person? So there is a lot of jargon, I think, within the kind of investment world. And I think you do, like with everything, you get to grips with it. You go through, uh, you know, you go through the motions. You maybe have a couple of embarrassing conversations and you start to realize like and get an understanding of what it entails. And I definitely think once once you get to raising money from more institutional investors rather than just angels, um, you know, by that point, you should understand what you're doing. <laughs> and, you know, it is more complicated with shareholders agreements and, you know, um, term sheets, etc. And, and you learn a lot. And actually, it is a really interesting process to go through because, you know, obviously, there's as, as much about selling the brand, but also just understanding the legalities, what support you're getting yourself into and making sure you protect yourself more importantly, I guess, as you, you bring on that new partner. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is, a, a, again, a learning thing, but it's why it's also good to kind of, you know, do smaller raises. And, and I'm a big believer in trying to find like the right angels to bring in at the right stage. I've got some great mm-hmm. kind of investors now involved who I lean on quite heavily for kind of support and coaching. And yeah, again, it's choose them wisely because they will really help and support you. But also if it's not so great, it can be a very difficult like you know relationship to manage over the long term and mm-hmm. certainly not why you started the business to kind of be reporting into people you know yeah and it's complex right like the there are complexities in the process of accepting money you know they're they're giving you money on the basis that you're saying you're going to get a certain return so you know when it's all all going well everyone's happy and but when it's not you can have sort of given yourself like five scary bosses Mm. and there's a lot of you know people um people are very reluctant to give away equity i think there are sort of two thought processes to that obviously giving it away for a bigger you know, smaller slice of a bigger pie is one thing, but depending on your sort of exit has a big impact on, on how you structure that deal. But if you're, if you're going to get diluted and potentially lose control of your business at some point, or if you don't hit targets and you relinquish your capacity to, to control the brand, it's very difficult to, to know about the implications of that in very technical, legal and financial jargon, particularly as I presume, you know, me being presumptuous, but Firstly, as a woman in an environment where I expect a lot of the people you met were men, the, the mm. industry is beginning to, um, the industry being sort of venture and I guess private equity too for, for later raises. But 
male dominated predominantly more women are going into that and that's great but it's still a very small number percentage wise less than two percent of investments of vc happen into female founded companies so it's still it's still a very small number for you personally as an in, as a single founder right you don't have a business partner who's a whiz with the numbers which a lot of people do a lot of people go i'm the vision mission brand product sales i'll do all the packaging i'll do all the marketing i'll show up you know and you could just handle sort of like operations and all the rubbish Mm. stuff you know you have to raise you have to make enough money to hire a ceo which is probably a six-figure salary you know all those things how hard was it to be all of those things as one person walking into that environment yeah, I mean, in the first few years when you're kind of raising, so I did sort of 100k fundraise and 300, and then I raised a million and then two million. So that's sort of the the journey that I've been on. And certainly, the the first few when it was sort of um, raising from angels was, was a lot leaning on me to kind of deliver that growth uh, or deliver the kind of um, the the pitch and and the numbers. But you, you do obviously lean on people that can do the numbers and kind of articulate them. But one of the things that you just fundamentally have to lean into is just getting good at that sort of stuff. And I wouldn't say that I'm amazing at all the numbers, but I I don't shy away from it. And I certainly don't, um, you know, I I am, I kind of had to like upskill myself fundamentally in how to kind of articulate that and make sure I was all over it. And I think it's good training if I'm really honest, because actually I think too often sometimes women can lean away from like the, those bits which are are difficult and actually it's really important to have a firm grip on it and it, it then when you can hire your your fd who is amazing um and and can do all that stuff better than you at least you're there to really kind of push and challenge and not kind of let someone else kind of take over and 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 take responsibility responsibility completely over that so but then when it comes to kind of big fundraisers, by that point, I'd have like, I, you know, I have an amazing finance director. He honestly is a right hand and lent on him heavily in that due diligence process as much as anything else as well and getting all the kind of um, the data room and, and information over to the investors. So I would certainly say well, by that stage, you are able to kind of build a team around you that can support. And, you know, actually, I, I love the position that I'm in now because I do have, you know, a strong senior leadership team that, um, you know, know more than I do about certain aspects of their particular areas. And it means that it, as a team, we're really strong um, when we're pitching into, you know, raise funds. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable piece to kind of walk, do as a sole founder. And I think, um, thankfully, I think at early stage, when you are raising smaller amounts through angels, they are more buying into you. And as long as you've got some goodish numbers to kind of back up what you're saying, I think, the right investor will be sort of supportive and won't interrogate every last, you know, decimal point on whatever you're, you're, you're presenting. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess I'm saying it's like, you can be can still kind of, you can do it without having necessarily those COOs sort of like people with the experience kind of doing it for you. But it, it's certainly at a point where you do need to kind of get that team to support you to kind of deliver the, those kind of crucial fundraisers, which are more complicated. And in terms of, um, you know, the business, as we said, started 2013. So, you know, you've grown substantially and still a relatively short period of time. What are some of the hardest decisions that you've had to make? Are they connected to personnel and sort of hiring and firing? Are they about, um, 
profit over some of the other considerations. Like, as you say, my hands are tied. We're tied into this factory. We want it to be better, but we physically can't do that right now. You know, what are some of the decisions that have been hardest for you in in the last sort of um, eight years? Yeah, I think um, there's probably a few. I think letting go of things that aren't working, I think can be really difficult decisions. Um, We had... Uh, you know, three years into the business, I decided that we wa- I wanted to launch a range of almond milks. And I thought, oh, they're going to fly. Like, obviously, plant-based is huge. Um, and I, we got them out the door relatively quickly. And they just didn't work. They just didn't perform how I thought they would for various different reasons. And it was also really distracting. They were kind of taking us away from actually a really successful product range within our kind of nut butters. And we were really still a relatively small team. And I remember that particular moment being like, I mean, we can hang on to this. And particularly it was a product that I'd developed. So I was particularly attached to it. And we could chuck loads of money at this trying to grow it. <laughs> or we could say, call it quits and say that didn't work and just um, move on. Mm-hmm. That one was a particularly difficult decision because I loved the range. I loved how it looked. It just didn't work. So I, I ended up pulling the plug on it. And even to this day, I still think, oh, I'd love that to have been in our range. And why, you know, I did have interrogated why it hasn't, didn't work. So that one was particularly hard because you, it's kind of like letting go one of your babies. You're like, oh, I don't want to do it. Um, but yeah, it was the right decision to be made. Um, and I think team, yeah, I think decisions around team, you know, obviously there have been people that have come and come and gone within the business, some of which obviously um, had to have those difficult conversations with around it, it not necessarily working. And I think they become particularly difficult when they are si- I mean, it's always hard. This is not saying it's only when it's more senior uh, roles, but when they are kind of people that you brought on for those at that senior leadership positions, really difficult on lots of levels. For for that individual, it's difficult because they've given up their previous job where they had stability to take a risk on your brand. And for whatever reason, both sides, it didn't work. Um, that's, that's difficult for them and you can appreciate that. So it's difficult for your team because you've sold it into everyone. You've said like this amazing person's going to come and they're going to fix all our problems. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't work. And you've got to kind of like pick yourself up and pick the rest of the team up and still get their buy-in and, and belief in like your decision-making around who you put in, decide to hire in the business. And then it sets you back. You've then got like, you know, maybe a year of like a gap if it's particularly someone senior where you're trying to cobble together together the team so mm-hmm. certainly had situations particularly in our commercial team where we've had that real challenge to find the right fit for that leadership role and um you know sometimes it means you can doubt yourself and your decisions around people if particularly when someone hasn't worked and you've let them go I think that can be really kind of like you double guess your instincts around people which generally mm-hmm. speaking I, I'd say mine are normally pretty good when it comes to hiring but when it doesn't work, you start to question like your process and your your gut and and how you went doing it went about doing it. So those those are difficult, I think. Um, yeah, and it always does feel negative. You know, I think um, particularly with you know, there's I sort of feel an affinity to what you're saying about hiring and firing. I've certainly felt for a long time like you're always one good hire away from fixing it. There's always this sense of like you know when you start, it's all well and good trying to hire people but you're like I've got 18 grand a year as a salary so you know it's going to be a young scrappy person I certainly had no idea about management so you're really just sort of like trying to figure out on the job how to do that and obviously then when you get 
the when you're in a position to make a more senior hire or you've got a bit more money to deploy, we, you know, I spent huge amounts of money, you know, 80 to 100 grand on recruitment fees in a year. And 50% of those disappeared after three months and recruiters won't give you any rebate on that money because their maximum is three months, your probation six, you're fucked. I mean, it's just a disaster. And as you say, you're sort of getting everyone hyped because you want to give this person the best opportunity. I mean, I, I think generally, you know, pretty, I would say, you know, pretty quickly whether it's going to work and then yeah. you just sort of hope that it turns and then yeah. eventually you sort of are forced to, to make the, the decision. And it, it really can feel a bit like a breakup because you're, you feel for them, you feel for your team. It always feels disruptive. Um, and people have a lot of conflicting advice. Like I was told as soon as you fire someone or you mutually decide it's not right, you know, they should leave the business that day. Um, while other people are like, get them to work their notice because it mm. keeps them, you know, and it's like, it's really hard because it's also very individualized and you never want it to be sort of acrimonious and difficult, but, um, there's this sort of sense of duty. You've got to try and not resent the person because you felt like you gave them an opportunity. And if they were rubbish, you know, then you sort of feel like you've wasted time and money. And as you say, you can be like six months back on that mm. role because, mm. you know, so it is complex. I mean, do you have HR? Have you invested in help in your personnel <laughs> or have you done a lot of it yourself? Um, so we're a team of, there's 21 of us in the business. Um, at, at this point in time, we still don't have someone full-time or we don't have HR or support in-house, but we do, I do lean on like, particularly when it comes to um, more challenging situations like that, uh, support that I get externally. Um, so, at the, and, and luckily, I, to be honest, I haven't had a huge amount of like challenges through, you know, teams, people in my team, like generally speaking, like have hired some really brilliant people. But when it comes to those conversations, absolutely, you need that support to make sure you're doing it in the right way for both parties. And I think that's the important thing. Like, as I, one of my favorite books is um, The Hard Things About Hard Things by. Um, get his first name but Horowitz and he's brilliant because he, there's a whole chapter on like hiring firing and one of the things that I think he says and I think it's very truthful is like this is harder for that person like this is their livelihood and this is their um you know this is this is you know potentially really de- like demoralizing for them if they take it if you mm-hmm. handle it badly and I think he, he he kind of talks around that kind of particularly and like how you should deal with this as a as something that you need to go through and how do you specifically um, let go of someone that is someone that's senior and there's I think it's a great reference book to kind of go I often go back to as like because yes you can do things legally and you have to do it legally obviously and and in the right way but really it's a personal thing like it's more important how you act in that scenario and how you treat that person with compassion because it is a really difficult thing that they will have to handle and deal with so yeah I think it's trying to like remind yourself of that as much as it's annoying for you like this is also really difficult for them yeah and it can feel it can feel very rejecting I think you know irrespective of whether it's mutual and you know I I you know in the times I've been in that situation a lot of the questions that follow are about you know how we tell the rest of the team and making sure that it's it's there's a consideration there as you say for for that person who's who's probably um you know not having a great evening at the end of that day for sure and you want you know these decisions are part and parcel of running a business and I think it's not the avoidance of them it's the sort of as you say creating a culture and an environment that's as kind and thoughtful as possible in the face of some of those really challenging decisions and I think fundamentally it's like 
that person may have not worked in your company, but it does not mean that they won't work somewhere else. And it's, it is, and this is the cliche thing to say, but I really do think it's true that it is better for them if they leave than you stick at it for a year and actually you neither of you buy into what it is that you're doing or like you know neither of you buy you don't buy into them they don't buy into you and it's just awful actually if you protract it It, it's much better if you let them go and then they can go and find a job that they find really fulfilling and and thrive in and then you can find someone that works in your company so yeah I I I have don't believe that nobody has like nobody's not capable of doing a brilliant job it just didn't work in your company and that's fairer Mm -hmm. for them to let them go than just stick at it yeah for sure you mentioned um hard things about hard things I wanted to ask how you keep learning you talked about sort of networking which is a word we all hate but you know talking to people figuring stuff out cold calling factory uh you know manufacturers how do you continue to make sure that you're you're learning yeah I mean I I think it's the main reason why I started up the company because I, I just love like finding new things to kind of like push and challenge myself and actually it's one of the things about lockdown that I found quite difficult because it's much harder to kind of get out and sort of be inspired and 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 versus you're kind of just on zoom calls all the time um I generally think the most inspiring things are the people ones where you speak to someone whether that's a virtual coffee now or a coffee in person and I used to think oh god I'm wasting time I should be working on the business like you know pushing things getting deals etc but actually those I do almost every week try and build in like even if it's a quick half an hour conversation with a, a peer or someone new like I do try and reach out to people in my sector or outside of my sector to ask questions about certain things that they're doing and see if I can learn from them. I think it's genuinely the best way because, and it's inspiring. It can give you a buzz or you might help them and that could give you a buzz. Um, Cause as much as anything else, I think particularly right now, it's about trying to keep motivated and excited about what you're doing, which I am very much so, but sometimes the monotony of turning up every day and looking at my screen is just really difficult. So trying to find ways to kind of learn something or inspire, be inspired by someone um, but, but then aside from that, it's, I do, I love kind of self-help books. Um, so I do buy a lot of books. I've got the current one on my bookshelf that I'm meant to be reading is Chatter, which is how do you quieten the voices in your head? It's just recently, um, come out. So I, I think stuff like that, I think it's great. And, um, podcasts, I genuinely love podcasts. Um, I'll be listening to all of your back catalogue. I guess it's, you know, if you can't meet everyone for a coffee, but you can sort of listen to an interesting conversation by someone. I was actually last night listening to um, Julian from uh, from Huel um, and just so interesting to hear someone else's perspective about how they've grown their business. Um, so, yeah, I constantly find I'm plugging in on my evening walks to different people that I want to hear their stories. And um, you mentioned evening walks, right? So lockdown's been a kind of a very strange time for everyone to sit with themselves and and as you say there's a huge monotony with our job we don't have the same releases that we did we don't really have the capacity to move around in the way that we did there's become a bit of a gold standard of busyness right like people are expected to be doing more than they've ever done doing physical challenges reading lots of books writing a book listening and recording podcasts running their <laughs> businesses having children getting married. you know there's this sort of maximalism piece that has become a mark of success 
why do you think there's such an obsession now with the idea of busyness and um, how do you use routine to try and cut through that to make sure that you're being effective rather than just a sort of busy fool running around all day? Mm, I think I... I'm not sure if I know the answer to that, but I definitely feel the pressure with it because there is this, I think it comes out through, um, you know, PR and social media, this like outward persona of like the successful entrepreneur and how they've managed to achieve it by ha- having, you know, 18 hour days and, you know, five hour kind of morning routine, et cetera. And it, and it puts a lot of pressure and you can't help but listen to it because you think, well, if they do it, then maybe I'll be, if I do that, maybe I'll be more successful and maybe I'll be more effective. Um, and it's, a constant battle, I think, in your own internal voice to remind yourself that, it, that everyone's on a different path and that your path is the way that you're going to do it and just get comfortable in yourself. And I think it's, I have a tendency that I have to kind of push down regularly to kind of compare and despair. Like I'll compare myself and then with someone that's doing something like amazing and I'll, I'll not recognize all the great stuff that maybe my business is achieving. And, you know, it's, it's really trying to quieten that down and just be focused on and get in your lane because as much as anything else, it's just energy lost, worrying or stressing about how someone else is doing something when you could be focusing on something that's more positive for you. But how do I get that? Um, how do I push that out? Actually at the moment, my, my general mentality is like, build a structure every within my day that gets me through the week, which sounds really bad because it sounds like I hate, I hate my job because I actually love it, but it's to make sure I'm more get through the week in a way that is being a leader for my team and not just turning up at my desk and, um, you know, not, and being conscious that your role, my job is to make sure my team are inspired. And yes, it's to do other things as well, but primary, that's probably my number one focus. So how do I make sure I do that? And it's then just being like, almost telling yourself off. If I don't go for that walk or run in the morning, then I will be a bad, a worse version of myself. And I almost have to force myself and tell myself to just do it. Otherwise it just all falls apart. I find so simple things like that. You know, I, I have a rule that I will not start my day without having got gotten some fresh air for at least half an hour because it just will not, I will not be a good person. So, um, so it's basically, I've set myself a really low bar because I think that is like my number one goal. If I can do that every day, um, that, that will set me up well. Um, not necessarily push myself to do 10 different things. And although I'd love to write a book and stuff like that this year, maybe isn't the year to be setting those big goals because it's really difficult just doing the current day job in this environment. And I think that's really important to recognize yeah, we get we get told, I think, a lot, you know, whether it's young entrepreneurs or people working for someone else, but very much at the top of their game, you know, all this encouragement around self-care routines. And there are a lot of words that have been hijacked, um, which have become quite trendy in the sort of um, from a mental discipline perspective. And actually, I, I completely agree with you that the, the 30 minute walk or the like I have, I always walk. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I live quite near my office. So I walk to work and get a coffee and there's a structure and a routine to that. And I also know like I haven't worked out yet today and my Peloton bike is looking at me, you know, telling me I'm a shit. And it's like, I know that I need to do something in the next couple of hours because it will create a much more productive afternoon. And I guess over time you can sort of figure out what those points are for you in terms of mentally preparing yourself for the day and and sometimes that is 
30 minutes on a podcast or, you know, a phone call with someone who's not connected to work or whatever it is. And I think there's a lot of pressure for these very elaborate um, commitments to that in a day, which are really unrealistic. And then you just feel rubbish because you feel like you haven't achieved them. So I think it's really good advice, sort of picking stuff that's achievable, that makes a difference and is impactful to you. But it doesn't need to be, you know, because I agree with you, the social media lens particularly although a wonderful marketing tool can be, you know, you see some pristine woman six years older than you with a better body than you had when you were 20 with three children and and an attractive husband sort of sitting on her kitchen island talking about her business. And you're like, I'm not wearing a bra. Like it's it's like, what? Like that is not achievable. And then you kind of feel like you have to lie to, you know, you don't want to get into that thing of like, pretending that you're you know obviously you've got to show up to to be professional but it's it's hard and it's tiring and it's frustrating and it can be really lonely and I think there are many many wonderful things that come with running a business but there's a reality that comes with it that can be can be challenging and and I was going to ask you how you deal with competition but I guess potentially the answer to that is sort of not focus on it Mm. yeah definitely that I think I'm going a little bit back to your last point because what I loved what you just said just then was just I think it's surround yourself with people that say stuff like that which make you feel okay about maybe not being that you know amazing woman on social media uh, I think surround yourself with people that give you that reality check because most of the time people are just putting smokes and mirrors up on on social media and it's not true um but you want to have like a handful of people that you can go to and actually just be really frank and, be, and honest with and say something that makes everyone feel good in the room rather than like make, makes you feel like you have to constantly raise your raise your bar and, and standards um and it's a funny one because it's not saying you're not ambitious it's just being kind to yourself and giving you the space to kind of be yourself and therefore if you do that you will achieve and deliver but in terms of competition, I, I, yeah, I do not, I don't look at any of my competitors on social media. I try as much as possible to ignore it and, and really just focus on what we want to do because I think it can be an echo chamber uh, as much as anything else and can actually lose the kind of spark and inspiration that you have that comes from you naturally. Um, I find it quite unhelpful actually constantly being reminded about like what other people are doing. But I do find it helpful having very clear goals, very clear KPIs that we need to deliver and to be like regularly looking at those, regularly like checking in because I get both motivated if we're slipping behind, but also like a buzz if we're pushing forwards. So I think it's it's just being clear what success looks like for you and what you want to achieve. Um, and that doesn't also, also always mean commercial. That could be like for us, like net zero. That's a really exciting goal that I want to see us deliver this year. I don't care what other people are doing because they might be focusing on other things, which is fine. You're, you're focusing on what you think is right for your brand and, and business. So, yeah, um, I try and stay away from that as much as I can. Yeah, exactly. Um, Pip, I, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad that we're now friends and I've I've learned a lot already from talking to you and I'm sure lots of people listening to this will be you know equally as inspired and interested in what you've achieved and uh, looking forward to um what's to come so thank you for taking the time I know you're busy I really appreciate it and um I'll speak to you soon speak to you soon thanks so much